0: refugees and border walls, woke celebs and socialist chick, social engineering and COVID lockdowns. It's easy to get wound up over what's happening in our country and in the world. That's why it's time for Acton Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host Eric Cohn and Acton Institute experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Acton Unwind will explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective, connecting good intentions with sound economics as it works to promote and to shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash NR or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash NR. To subscribe, please check it out.
1: Two mad dogs and Englishmen. Did we miss a week somewhere, Charlie?
2: Yeah, we did. Thanksgiving. Okay. Was that, I know that
1: was obviously your fault.
2: It was my fault. Um, Not mine. So, okay, we'll blame you for that one. Try to do
1: two this week. Make up for it. Try to keep something like our consistent output at least an average of a a podcast a week doing what we can do to make that happen how was your thanksgiving by the way did you do do you do the traditional turkey thing and all that stuff you're a fan of the traditional american thanksgiving
2: yes we had a traditional american thanksgiving we we didn't host it this year Um, always best when someone else does it well there's there's a lot to be said for it so i had a great day i lost all three bets on the nfl
1: who did you bet on
2: i bet on well uh obviously this is against the spread but i bet on the chicago bears and then the dallas cowboys and then the new orleans saints and i lost against the spread on all three
1: huh you know i'm surrounded by dallas fans as you can imagine but my next door neighbors are huge huge saint fans and they've got the uh you know fleur-de-lis flags out front and all that stuff and uh there's always a little mar- miniature Mardi Gras uh, going on over there when uh, when the Saints are having a good good season. So I don't get that kind of sports fandom. I really just I I don't emotionally connect with it. But I'm glad that they do. It's uh, I think it adds to the uh, color and uh, merriment of the neighborhood.
2: Well, we've done this before the the, the Kevin Williamson sports experience. Um, yes, I watched all three games. I'm, I'm as you know somewhat obsessed. But, other than losing those bets, which weren't financial bets uh it's just a pool. I had a great Thanksgiving,
1: <laughs> yeah, we were actually we have family in Massachusetts, and it's always kind of fun to be in Massachusetts for Thanksgiving because you know it's kind of where the whole thing uh starts, so there's a certain uh traditional uh feeling to it, although um we also spent um meeting with some friends. And they did a, I always thought it was kind of a joke. I didn't think it was something people actually did, but they made a turducken. Uh, How was it? It was delicious. It was really good.
2: Um, But this, I
1: think, just goes to prove that basically anything you put duck in is going to turn out pretty well.
2: I do love duck. It is. It is good stuff.
1: Um, Turkey, I can kind of take or leave. Um, I like it in sandwiches. A big roasted turkey is, that's a lot of turkey.
2: I like both. I, I do have a particular fondness for duck, though. The area of France that we used to stay in when I was a kid, around Saint Emilion, um, is known man for of the people, duck. Charlie, man of the people. Well, it's less. It's less. Uh, I mean, I'm not a man of the I'm, people. I'm, I'm But it is actually less uh, impressive than it sounds because, of course, we could just drive there. <laughs> right. Yeah. But anyhow, it's known for. Duck uh, and foie gras, and then uh, mustard and strong red wines. So I have mm. many memories of, of all of these things.
1: Probably not very good memories, though, in some ways. Like sort of fuzzy memories, I would
2: imagine. Well, sometimes. naturally, naturally. Too much strong, mustard. Strong
1: red wine. It's too much mustard. That will, will get you every time, the mustard. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe my thing about the, the turkey is this. There are so many other good American game birds. Like I really wish that pheasant were our Thanksgiving tradition. I think it'd be a much more enjoyable holiday. But even, you know, quail or or lots of other things that are that are better than turkey. Yeah, but uh, I like traditions. Yeah, I do too. But you know, but they they weren't always that tradition. It could have been a different tradition.
2: Yeah, yeah that's true. go back in time. That's true. A different Thanksgiving tradition. That's true. But conservatives tend not to have too much interest in those arguments that's true i mean they could have called america something else they could have called it vespucci and if it were called vespucci i'm sure i would think it was the only possible name for it vespucci would be great
1: um i like uh jonah goldberg's uh observations about the um godfather and the character at the beginning whose name is uh americo buonanotte you know good night america and the uh you know, his disappointment
2: with the uh,
1: life in the new world and the reassertion of the old world mafia tradition and his uh, quest for justice. I always think that's uh, kind of a fun thing.
2: I haven't heard Jonah talk about this. I should correct. That.
1: Yeah, he wrote something for National Review about it some some years ago, and uh, it was good. It was it was of interest, worth looking up. Do you uh, do you cook at all? I know you said you didn't uh, you didn't prepare the meal this time. Uh, you, were, you were at someone else's place. But are you a, a cooking person?
2: not especially there are a few things i can cook i don't do it too often i wouldn't say i had any great flair for it yeah i um i pass through the kitchen
1: when i'm taking out the trash and That's
2: pretty much. <laughs> i'm my, uh, extremely good at opening wine and making sure that the people who are cooking have enough of it
1: that's kind of the same role i play
2: actually yeah in uh in many ways i am the official opener of wine
1: uh in the residence and that's um that is my general contribution to the, uh, culinary situation. Uh, the other thing I like about Thanksgiving, of course, is that, um, I think the world would be a much better place if we thought more often about gratitude and practiced it in a more active way. You know, um, it's easy to be thankful for things and grateful for things when something nice has just happened to you, or when you've just achieved something you wanted to achieve or some you know, benefit has come your way. But, uh, there's, I think, a general, uh, broader and more active kind of attitude uh, of gratitude that I think is, is necessary to living a happy life, both as an individual and as a citizen. I think that gratitude is a really big part of, of, of good citizenship. And uh, as you know, I worry a lot about uh, citizenship as a kind of moral issue because I think it's really the fundamental root of most of our political problems is that we've forgotten how to be free people and good citizens in a republic.
2: I often think that I should spend my day writing about things that I like in America. Yes. Because I do like America a great deal. And then something awful happens or some terrible plan is proposed and I instead nuke that.
1: Yeah, and they we'll do come from the
2: same but... place, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. That You're looking to uh, preserve and fortify what, right. what is good
1: and what, what, what you are, in fact, grateful for. Um yeah I should I should remind myself of that from time to time because I've been pretty despairing about our country and its uh, prospects in the last few years. I should try to work on that and uh maybe emphasize the uh the positive and the happy a little bit more than I have. Uh oh speaking of the word republic just made me think. What do you think about Barbados uh kicking out the queen?
2: Well, I think they have every right to do so.
1: Of course they have every right to do so, but what do you really think about it?
2: I am somewhat indifferent, quite quite genuinely. I, I think the Commonwealth is a broadly good thing. I nevertheless understand that you know, we took over a lot of countries. And some of them we ran well, some of them we didn't. I think many of them benefited from our having been there. (laughs) But I also understand intellectually it doesn't make a great deal of sense for that arrangement or any of the subsequent arrangements to exist in perpetuity. I suspect next time Australia is asked whether it wishes to become a republic, it will say yes. In fact, last time the reason that it said no was because, and this is a real problem, it's quite difficult to arrange a new political system when you have a parliament with a monarch at its head. You have to change a lot. You have to elect a head of state, for example. And then the question is well, what is their relationship to parliament, to the prime minister? Where does the power lie, et cetera? I don't think it was entirely the case that Australians rejected their proposed republic because they would have missed the British. <clears throat> so I th- I think it makes sense for, for these countries to to pop off if if that's what they want to do. Yeah,
1: but, it's funny. I have sort of a do... Um, go ahead, please.
2: But I don't think that there's anything remotely um, malicious or undesirable about remaining a... a Remember of the Commonwealth. I mean, it's not as if uh, Barbados was being ruled by the British.
1: I have sort of a dual attitude about this stuff. I mean, monarchy to me is just kind of silly and embarrassing. You know, the idea there's this kind of magical family and they somehow embody uh, the British nation in some mystical way. It's just a really silly, ancient, superstitious idea that has survived long past its its point of intellectual defensibility. At the same time, I am just such a conservative about these things that I kind of like these places the way they are. And, um, I mean, I don't really know Barbados very well, but I'm just thinking about the U.K. And, um, you know, every time I'm there, I'm just reminded how much I like it. And I know it's got its problems that you don't see because you're there as a tourist and you don't live there. You don't pay the taxes and all that kind of stuff. But I just kind of, um, I have a, a sense that I'd like to keep things more or less the way they are. Every now and then in Switzerland, someone will try to draw me into a discussion of Swiss politics. And I just tell them, you know, for the United States, I'm kind of a libertarian conservative. But when it comes to Switzerland, I'm sort of a traditionalist conservative. I just like it the way it is, and I don't want to change anything. I don't much want to talk about it.
2: I mean, I, I broadly agree. I I don't think that I would change something so substantial if I were, say, Australian. Mm-hmm. I do think Barbados is an interesting one and I put it in a different category than Australia in the sense that you've been there I assume I have uh, yeah. and to Australia Australia was not some virgin land We have aborigines and uh, there's a great deal of problematic history there as there is with Native Americans in the United States but it, it is nevertheless the case that for most of its Uh, colonial and post-colonial history Australia was a majority British nation now sometimes that was uh, by explicit design and in some unpleasant ways the (laughs) whites only policy uh, which was so popular in mainstream up until the 70s but nevertheless the people who lived there were were British on, on the whole. And if you read Bill Bryson's book on Australia, they were British to the extent that in school they would learn the British curriculum. And so you had these sort of farcical scenes of kids in the most extraordinary landscapes learning about English gardens that looked nothing yes. like um, <laughs> their own country. And of course, they'd never been to England. And so when you say to somebody of that extraction, well, do you want to keep the Queen? It just has a different uh, tone and, and and context than if you say to somebody in a majority non-white, non-British country, uh, such as Barbados, do you want to keep the Queen? In the sense that, I don't mean this literally, obviously, she wasn't alive, but the Queen is the invader for the majority of the people in Barbados, whereas The majority of the people in Australia were the invaders on behalf (laughs) of the Queen. (laughs) Yeah. So I suppose I'm a little bit more understanding when a a Caribbean island, for example, says, no, we we, we don't want that anymore. I I think it's a little bit different if you're talking about Canada or Australia or Mm. what you are. Well, as I said, I'm not a, I'm not a proponent of, of radical change in, in
1: most places, but I think if Texas ever does break away from the union, we should form a commonwealth with Western Canada and Australia. So I think we're all kind of similar in lots of ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, the great hope of Winston Churchill was this eventual Anglosphere mm-hmm. union. And I don't want that because I think it would sully the United States. <laughs> um, Do you? Yeah, but I think we would lose our individual liberties. Mm. But I do think that when historians look back at the Anglo-West in a thousand years, they won't draw any distinction, really, whatsoever, between Britain, the United States, Canada. It'd be much of a so much we'll
1: less. all be Churchill's English-speaking peoples.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I just the reason I say that Kevin is the same reason I don't like um, you know international institutions such as the UN I mean mm-hmm. if you if you have as we do in the United States by far and away the most effective free speech protections in the world mm-hmm. there is only loss that can be uh, the product of of uniting with or submitting to the laws of, or engaging in treaties with nations that don't. And if you added Britain, I know this wouldn't be how it worked, but if you added Britain as a state, you would have 60 million people who have a fundamentally different conception of free speech and conscience rights than does the average American, and not everyone in America, of course, is good on this, but the center of gravity here is more, smaller liberal than it is in Britain. And, this, But this... Charles,
1: I'm surprised here that you are overlooking the obvious solution to that problem.
2: What's that?
1: Colonialism.
2: <laughs> How do we do that, then? We impose
1: our, uh, our uh, form of government on the British for a few hundred years, and then... Uh...
2: Let them run with them. Revenge. <laughs> Go over and you say, no,
1: revenge. "Not <laughs> revenge. It's just it's going to be hard work civilizing the British." You know, it's uh, you know, it's been tried before, and many people have, have failed.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I I feel the same way about Canada. I, I like Canadians. I'm Not just saying that because I'm talking to you, but I I do. Uh, but if you look at their say hate speech laws, I don't want them in the United States. And yeah,
1: they're terrible. They're terrible. Uh, So one thing we've avoided talking about now for about half an hour that I would like to see that would be a radical change in American governance and politics is overturning Roe v. Wade, which the uh, Supreme Court is not explicitly, I guess, thinking about right now. But they are hearing arguments or heard today arguments in the Dobbs case, which many people think um, is an invitation to essentially nullify Roe, although no one really quite knows what the court will do on it. I listened to some of those arguments and, and, and read uh, accounts of some of them as well. I understand you've been listening to it pretty much all day. Um, one quick thing I thought I would start with on that, and that was um, Justice Sotomayor and her ridiculous thing that uh, her question, well, if people start to believe that this is all political, then how will we survive? How will the court survive And I can't believe that she's really so ignorant and insulated as to not know that that's precisely the argument against Roe, is that it was nakedly political. It was an exercise in politics rather than an exercise in jurisprudence. And that's what we're asking them to correct, to turn the political question over to the political branches, which are the legislatures and possibly the National Congress. Your thoughts?
2: Well, and and on that specific point... Both the counsel, uh for maintaining Roe and Justice Sotomayor tried to have it both ways because they said, look, we don't want to be seen as political. And there was no uh, change here other than the makeup of the court. And so, if after 50 years we overturn Roe, we will be seen as a political institution. But they also relied on Casey, which was a follow up to Roe, which was decided 30 years ago, and uh, which has as one of its central arguments the idea that the court needs to not be seen as political. So they, they said, well, we've got 50 years of this decision being upheld. Also, the last time we really looked at it, 30 years ago, we'd had 20 years of this decision being upheld. And, and what, what really came across to me, other than that Sonia Sotomayor should not be on the Supreme Court, but should be in Congress, is that there were... Two arguments being made, one by the anti-Roe side and one by the pro-Roe side, and they didn't meet. The anti-Roe argument is that Roe versus Wade and its companion decisions had and has no basis whatsoever in the text of the Constitution, the structure of the Constitution, or any of the traditions that informed the Constitution. And the argument from the pro-Roe side is, it's been here a long time and we like it. And I'm not being facetious. That is the argument. There were two arguments made in defense of Roe. One, Starry decisis. We made this decision. What would be the logical reason for us to get rid of it now unless we adopt, which they should but haven't, the Justice Thomas approach, which is if a decision is bad, kill it. And two, this is good for whatever reason. It helps women, it alleviates poverty, it advances the cause of privacy. And they weren't having the same conversation. I just thought it was fitting that the the first sentence out of uh, the first lawyer who was arguing for overturnings mouth was this has no basis in the constitution which is the root of the dispute yeah
1: another thing that jumped out at me that i think might have caught some people's attention was uh justice barrett talking about the question of bodily autonomy and noting that there are cases in which the law um requires us to curtail bodily autonomy and the um Example she mentioned was vaccine mandates.
2: Well, there is a, a great irony at the moment. I don't think they're comparable, at least not perfectly, but you do have a lot of Republicans running around saying, My body, my choice. Yes, you do, don't you? Now, of course, I don't think that it's a good argument.
1: Um, Did you see that Saturday Night Live skit, yeah. <laughs> uh, game show, Republican or not? Yeah, that was good.
2: I don't think it's a good argument for abortion because the body that is at stake in uh, an abortion is not the woman's.
1: Right, it begs the question.
2: But I do think there's an interesting line of argument on this in general. I I wrote this in my piece for the Roe issue. As a libertarian, I'm actually very open to my body, my choice arguments. Me too. I don't like vaccine mandates, although I'm pro-vaccine. I am quite happy if somebody wants to take all sorts of drugs or tattoo themselves in their face. Or if they're an adult, frankly, cut off their genitals, although I dislike that. I just don't think that you should be able to kill other people. Yeah. Um where I thought this question was interesting in the context of the oral arguments was Justice Thomas's question about laws pertaining to uh, pregnant women in the interest of protecting the child and how they are compatible with the philosophy underneath Roe. I mean, yeah. He asked, for example, about laws that prosecute women for ingesting cocaine if they're pregnant. He didn't ask this, although it would have been a good question to ask. Why is it acceptable for the state of Ohio to file two murder charges if a pregnant woman is killed? I mean, it is, this to me is an amazing paradox in our law. Yeah. If you, Orwellian double-think. Well, because if you murder a woman in ohio and she's pregnant you can be charged with two counts of murder but if the Mm. woman herself wants to kill the child that's fine and in a sense that renders the metaphysical question of the child's humanity uh, entirely subject to the desires of the mother i I think that's crazy i mean (laughs) that's not scientific
1: no it's bananas but um, you know the sort of metaphysics of all this has always been you know pretty pretty bananas um, because it it requires us to pretend that we don't see what we see and that we don't know what we know and the what is plain before us is not plain before us. So I've written many times about this. One of the great ironies of the abortion debate is that it's the pro-choice side and the progressives who always like to present themselves as the rationalists, as the scientifically minded people, um, you know, working from scientific evidence who have essentially resurrected these you know medieval and scholastic notions of quickening and ensoulment and that there's some thing that happens at some point during the course of the pregnancy um at which time this you know lump of cells is magically invested with humanness um as though it were you know an onion or something before that and that of course is just it's pure superstition it's pure magic uh thinking and, um, but a lot of our politics is still informed by that kind of, you know, superstitious and magical thinking.
2: It it was within the context of historical common law precedent, but it was jarring to hear the word quickening <laughs> in yes. a Supreme Court case.
1: Yeah, that uh, was really quite something. Uh, one of the things that sort of always bothers me about this is, um, you know, sometimes you'll hear from pro-choice people who will compare, uh pro-life to the Taliban, you know, you're the you're the American Taliban, you're the Christian Taliban. What they don't ever seem to know is that I mean, there's some pretty fundamentalist interpretations of Islamic law that are basically pro-choice because they have this doctrine of quickening that you know, abortion up to a certain point in the pregnancy is is acceptable. Um in fact, there was an interesting piece, I might have been the Guardian, it was one of the British newspapers, I think it was the Guardian. Um back in the 90s or maybe the early 2000s about how in Taliban-controlled areas in Afghanistan, there were actually uh, more ready access to abortion than there was in the rest of the country uh, because these were very, very poor areas, and the Taliban were willing to permit abortions essentially for economic reasons. So um, it ain't us on the Taliban side here, folks, just for the record.
2: No. No, and of course, religious... Belief is not a prerequisite to being pro life. It was a particularly irritating moment when
1: That was your essay, wasn't it, recently?
2: It was, yeah. <laughs> and Sotomayor asked this, you know, isn't this a religious conviction? Isn't this Isn't this something that only religious people would believe? Are there any you know, and and I and I don't know who it was, but someone other justice came in and said, "Well, aren't there some secular philosophers who believe that you know unborn children and that, <laughs>
1: for instance, Charles Cook, in Charles well,
2: I wouldn't call myself a philosopher, I'm certainly secular. I'd call you a philosopher. Well, thanks, Kevin. But no, I just I just think that um, if you listen to those arguments and you believe that the Supreme Court sh- should be upholding the law as it is written, then there is only one outcome here.
1: Yeah, a little aside here, and um, I'll point out that I, I say this as a Catholic, but Sotomayor made an interesting kind of mistake that you see a lot, I think, which is that people who are raised in a Catholic intellectual milieu and then end up at odds with kind of Catholic social teaching on some things go through their lives thinking the Catholic case for the thing they disagree with is the only case. Um, you know they are so fixated in their own Catholic experience that they don't understand that there are all sorts of other um, arguments against abortion, for instance.
2: I, I think that's right, but it's something I can't conceive of because I've never believed in God. Yeah, right. and so I—I I mean, I know that, that that's wrong. I've always been pro-life, and I've never believed in God. Right.
1: Well no, and I don't and again, I don't think that you um you don't necessarily have to um go that way. I mean, I think I'm it was more being pro-life that led me to be Catholic than being Catholic that led me to be pro-life. I was pro-life for a long time before I was Catholic. You know, I wasn't born and raised Catholic. Um, I think that yeah, just for this the sort of experience of your eyes and the knowledge of the world that you have as a person who can read and engage with, you know, kind of Basic scientific literature and, and the and the facts of life should be enough to make you anti-abortion. The other part of it that it I just... does, there's no there's no mysticism required. There's not really even, um, yeah, there's certainly nothing. There's no supernatural element required, and there isn't really even any great kind of you know moral leap in there. Um, you know, it's well, can we kill a four-year-old? No. Can we kill a two-year-old? No. Can we kill a baby after it's been born? No.
2: Why can't we kill one
1: five minutes before? Well, because.
2: Right. And so we can have an argument over whether an unborn child is a person. But the ancillary arguments seem to me irrelevant or at least subordinate to that question. Because the one I hear the most is, well, what if the parents don't want it? Or what if it's going to be poor or... Well, okay. As you say, then, then let's kill children when they're a week old. Yeah. The thing that haunts me about this, I must say, as a parent, is that you know what you realise, and you know this without being a parent, but it's really apparent when you're a parent because you spend your entire life with the kid. Apparent when you're a parent, you're saying. (laughs) Is that obviously you have a profound effect on your children? They speak the language you speak. They pick up a lot of their Ideas and social cues and mannerisms from you, but they come out formed. Yes. I mean, not fully formed. And in a sense, they come out as savages, but from the They're very people, though. Yeah. And, and, and different. I mean, I wrote this in my essay. One of my children is, is instinctively musical. I'm not talking about being taught or practicing. Instinctively musical. Uh, He has, or I think he will have absolute pitch. He he instinctively understands how music works. If you sing him or play him a motif, he will sing it back in key. Why? Now, a lot of it's genetics, of course. I have that. My grandfather had that. But the other one he doesn't. got a lot
1: of beetles in utero. <laughs> yeah,
2: but the, the other one doesn't have it, right? Why is that? That that suggests to me that what we're talking about here are, uh, and I don't use this in a religious sense because I don't believe in it, but are, are you know what would be referred to as children of God? You know, <laughs> the, mm. the, these these little people are unique and. If we leave them alone, which is what not aborting them does. In almost every case, they will grow into something you know, that is not just the product of its surrounding, or yes, um, or, or or you know a, a blank canvas to be painted on, and you know killing those people. One of the one of the one of the the often ugly ways of sort of putting this because it makes it sound as if this is the reason to oppose abortion, but is to say, well, what if one of them's Beethoven? I mean, the, the fact is, if one of them is an absolute loser, you also don't kill them, right? But, right. Yeah. but also, what if one of them's Beethoven, right? I mean, I, I just find this this horrifying because what that does is it it, it 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 should never imply that Beethoven is more worthy than anyone else. But what it does, I think, is underscore my suspicion that that you're conceived and then that is you and that 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 if you if you are a beethoven that genius is with you in the womb and so now if you just apply that that unique talent to everyone because everyone has something good about them pretty much um we, we we are we are on an industrial scale wiping out people who have those those attributes whatever they are and i i, I just i can't get my head yeah they
1: are, they are they're whole and entire people you know I have, a, I have a little niece who's not quite a year old yet and um i got to spend a few days with her and she's a person you know she's yeah. got a distinct personality um a sort of mischievous one as it turns out but um yeah they are they are whole and entire people right no uh no assembly required
2: <laughs> no batteries but these are separate questions, of course, in that the Constitution is silent on the matter of abortion. This was asked today, I think, by Justice Gorsuch, who said, of course, the, the Supreme Court can't ban abortion, right? It just shouldn't have a view on it because it's not in the Constitution.
1: Yeah, I've heard a few people make, you know, sort of arguments for uh, a constitutional, you know, right to life. I've, I've never been sold on it myself.
2: I don't uh, buy that argument, and I, I think Ramesh. I might. would just
1: acknowledge that there's a case out there that's made. Yeah, by no, I who was going to say aren't idiots.
2: No, absolutely, there is. There is. Uh, I was going to say I don't buy it, um, but it's a hell of a lot stronger than the idea that the Constitution mandates legal yes. abortion.
1: Yeah, secretly, no one knew about it for a couple hundred years.
2: Because if if, if you read the Fourteenth Amendment, you can read it to apply to all persons, and uh, if you think people in the womb are persons. Now, I, I think that's, you know, that sounds superficially uh, correct, but I, I think you have to look to the public meaning at the time, and that wasn't it, but. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so any, uh, any prognostications
1: you'd like to uh, engage in about what the court's going to do here or what the political fallout would be if um, pro-life side wins this argument? Well, I, I then, regard, uh, before I before I let you answer the question, I'll I'll add something to it because I always dislike these um, um, essays. There was one in Slate, I guess it was, which was, if pro-lifers win this case, they're going to be sorry. <laughs> and uh, you get that from uh, from Democrats a lot. That if you people get what you want politically, we're going to be really mad at you, and then you'll be unhappy. You know, don't you dare win a fight.
2: I mean, isn't there something to that though? It, it, in that, I I suppose what they're aiming that argument at is not you, but moderates who don't care about this issue, but who are generally Republicans.
1: Yeah, these people need to learn how to read a real poll.
2: Well, that's the thing. That's, so, so I, I think there might be some some political downside, if you will, to this for Republicans. I'm not sure it will be that pronounced.
1: I think there's going to be a political upside for them if they win it.
2: I think it's possible. I mean, it also depends where you are. Certainly, in a state like Texas, that that law that was passed is yeah. popular.
1: Something like eighty five percent of Americans are to the pro life side of the regime. Oh, no, and they're not all. You know, let's get rid of abortion in all circumstances. But um, very, very few Americans actually, you know, are what the law mandates right now no that's um, they right want a much more pro life arrangement so i think that um i think that there's probably some some juice in that for republicans
2: here is something that i suspect but don't really have too much to go on i have a, a strange suspicion that people outside of pro life activism might not actually care very much about abortion when it comes to it yeah
1: i think i don't think it's a lot of
2: people's top issue I understand that in certain areas, people will say I'm pro-choice, at least in the first trimester. I understand that there could be some downsides. I just am not sure that it motivates people. If you look at Virginia, this was supposed to be a big issue after the Texas law. Yeah. And it wasn't. No one cared. And the, the exit polling showed that you know, of the people who said they cared, 68% voted for the Republican. Yeah. I might be wrong. Maybe it will totally change our politics. And and maybe there'll be enormous blowback and there'll be a political price to pay and so forth. But I just wonder if it actually resonates outside of the professional class and the, the, the journalistic world in quite the way that we all assume yeah, I think you're right to um,
1: to have some skepticism about that.
2: Either way, the law is the law, and there is a, a strong case for upholding it, irrespective of the merits of the underlying issue, or the politics of it. And, you know, I, I, I thought today, listening to the oral arguments, one of the problems with our jurisprudence, at least over the last hundred years, is that there are so many lies baked into it that have to be acknowledged or sustained. And so, you know, Mario Loyola once said to me that if you look at New Deal jurisprudence and the way the courts have dealt with it since, it's a little like a man who lies to his wife one day after they get married and the lies just keep going and going and going. And 10 years later, he's got this completely fabricated (laughs) backstory (laughs) that he has to remember. And you know he'd be much better off just not lying in the first instance or coming clean after a year. And you know, there was there was a, a moment today when the uh, the lawyer for the anti Roe case was asked, "Well, you know, if we overturn Roe, won't we have to overturn Griswold?" And of course, he said no because there there's a scaffolding here that he doesn't want to completely uh unset but i mean the the real honest answer is yeah cuz you made yeah. that one up too
1: <laughs> yeah there's a lot
2: of stuff that we'll have to uh change
1: well that to me feels like a good place to put in the last word don't you
2: i think so and then um, we'll do another don't one on brief- friday
1: All right. Thank you all and talk to you soon. See you, Charles. All right. Bye.